This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. Welcome. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the show. And today, I have a very special episode for all of you Queen Elizabeth I fans out there. I had the privilege to speak with historian Dr. Estelle Peronk on the subject. By the way, her favorite subject. And we discussed everything from Elizabeth's relationship with Robert Dudley, her similarities to Anne Boleyn, and yes, I even found a way to discuss Thomas Seymour. Because, let's be honest, you can't talk about Elizabeth's early years without discussing Thomas. But before we get started, I'd like to thank my newest patron, Lori H. Thank you so much for your support, Lori. And thanks to all of you existing patrons and to the past patrons as well. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty and click Become a Patron. Right now, patrons receive early access to lessons on my Tudor course, as well as being eligible to win my monthly patron gift giveaways. This month, I'm giving away two books, Following in the Footsteps of the Princess in the Tower and Mary Queen of Scots' Downfall, The Life and Murder of Henry Lord Darnley. I'm also giving away in this package an adorable little paper model of Tower Bridge that you get to put together. If you enjoy the Tudor's Dynasty podcast, please subscribe or follow wherever you listen to my episodes. Also, if you would feel so inclined to do so, please leave a review. I absolutely love when I get reviews and love to hear from you as well. If you'd like to reach out to me to chat on one of the subjects of my show or just want to say hi, you can do so on Facebook Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me at Tudor's Dynasty. Dr. Estelle Perron is lecturer in early modern history at New College of the Humanities at Northeastern and an honorary research fellow within the Center for the Study of the Renaissance at the University of Warwick. She is the author of Elizabeth I of England Through Valois Eyes, Power, Representation, and Diplomacy in the Reign of the Queen, 1558-1588, and has published several essays on Elizabeth I, French monarchs, and other European queens. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Estelle to the show. Estelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to have you on the show today to discuss one of the most popular monarchs in English history, Queen Elizabeth I. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone who's ever come in contact with you knows that Elizabeth is your favorite. So what was it that started the love affair for you? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Actually, it's a, and it's a, I think it's a funny answer. Um, so, I, well, you know what I, I think people know that I'm French. So um, you don't really do English history um, in French schools. And maybe I, you know, maybe, you know, when I started learning English, maybe I talked about, well, I learned about um, um, Henry VIII a bit and his six wives. But I didn't really pay attention, if that makes sense. However, um, I decided to do English studies when I, I went to university. And when you do English studies in France, you do literature and um, history, and then you do linguistics and translations. And during one of my uh, lectures uh, on British history for the first time, right, it was about, um, there was one lecture on Elizabeth I. And the lecturer was quite passionate about this woman. And I was really 
paying attention to what she was saying because I could not believe that a woman during the 16th century was ruling unknown. You know, I was, oh my God, this is so amazing. And I kept, you know, when you, I was taking notes and I kept telling myself, oh, that's so amazing. That's so amazing. She's so, she's so badass. She's such a rock star. And I completely fell in love with her. And I know that sounds crazy because people would tell you, especially in academia, so I'm an academic and I, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a different way of doing history, I, I think. But people would tell you, you can't fall in love with your topic. And I, I would say, wait, well, if you don't, how are you going to work on that topic for so many years? So that didn't make any sense to me. But I completely fell in love with Elizabeth I to the point where when I finished that lecture, I went to the, um, I think it was the only or rare, you know, English bookshops um, in Aix-en-Provence where I did my, um, my BA. And I bought my first, you know, English history book on Elizabeth I, and I can even tell you which one it was. It was David Starkey's um, Elizabeth Apprenticeship. And so it's the early years, you know, it's Elizabeth as a princess. So I read that book and um, and I, I I just related to her, which is really weird because I, I don't have the kind of childhood that she had and I'm not a princess so, or queen. So, but, but I was really relating to her. She, um, you know, the underdog, the one I, I was bullied at school and I, I'm not comparing, you know, the fact that I was bullied with what she went through when she was declared bastard and everything. But I, I felt, yeah, I just... Yeah, I just felt really close to her. And from that moment, I really remember thinking, you know what? I really, like, it was clear to me. At that time, I didn't really know before that what I wanted to do with my life. So I did English studies thinking, well, maybe I'll teach English, you know, in, in France. But at that moment, reading that book and other books after that, obviously, not just that book, not just David Starkey. <laughs> um, <laughs> After that, it changed my life, and it was a turning point in my life. I felt completely in love. I bought many more books, and I remember going to my parents and said, you know what, I figured out I want to be a historian, but not just a historian. I want to be an expert on Elizabeth I. And at first, I think they were like, okay, yeah, right, sure. You know, like, <laughs> who says that? Um, but when they realized how determined I was, um, I think they really started like to be like, okay, maybe, maybe she means it, and maybe, maybe it's it's really gonna happen. And it all started with that because for me, she is so. And sorry for the noise; it's just my cat um, scratching. But it, for me, it's just like this idea that. There's no one like her. So we have other powerful queens and we have other powerful women, especially in the 16th century or in the 17th century, or even in medieval history. I guess like over time, we've always had powerful women, powerful queens. But there was absolutely no one like her who would say, you know what, don't want to get married, don't want to have children. It's fine. I'm a success. <laughs> like It's like, well, I think having that in the 16th century, having someone who defied you know, um, expectations was really like, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I admire her for that. But it doesn't mean I want to be her, but you see what I mean? Like, 
<laughs> I, I totally under, and I know you, you, I've, we've talked before about how my obsession is with Thomas Seymour. Yeah. And I feel that strange connection with him as well. Like I feel like a kindred spirit. Like I feel sometimes maybe just as misunderstood as he may have been, or I, I feel that like you feel it with her. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but I think, you know what, who said that, that, you know, you, you always like when you're interested in history about a topic or someone, it's because it, there's an echo in yourself. Like there's, there's something in you that gets close to that. And I think it's true for everything you do. So I think anyone who's interested in whatever type of history, because in themselves, there they have something that they are, you know, that's close to, you know, I don't know if you're interested in the world wars, for example, maybe you have something about your, you know, your um, ancestors or something, you know, you know what I mean? Like there's a link um, between past and present all the time. And uh, yes, I know, you, you know, that you, you have this obsession with Tom Seymour. And I think it's actually, since I, I started talking to you, I think it, it kind of uh, opened my mind about it a bit more than, than I used to be, as you know. I love that. You know, whenever I hear somebody say that, it just makes my day. I feel like I'm making some progress to getting more people to maybe look at his story in a different light. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, you know, what's difficult as well, though, is like we've lost so many, you know, especially in the 16th century, and I'm sure you realize that in your own research, is that we've lost so many, you know, evidence that sometimes it feels like we'll never know. Do you see what I mean? And you have to Definitely. go through with your gut feelings as well. Like, because maybe there's something missing. Right. That's uh, the hard part. And so what do you do once you have that, when you don't have the piece of evidence? Do you see what I mean? It's like, what, what does that mean? What do you do? I don't know. It's just, I find it really, sometimes really hard. The mystery of history. I love it. Yeah, it really is because, you know, when you work on the 18th century sources or 19th century or 20th century, you have so many. So it's another problem because you you can be you can, you know, you can be overwhelmed with the sources and the evidence. But with us, we know we've lost things. And maybe that evidence that we've lost would have shaped our understanding of the past completely differently. So when you told me your theory and what you thought about Thomas Seymour, and you know how strongly I felt, you know, about it. Yeah. Um, like now he's, you know, he's a horrible person. Um, I'm not, I'm still not saying that you've convinced me because it's a, it's a topic that I'm very, you know, passionate about, but I'm still thinking that may, have we missed something? Was it, was it something that, you know, was he set up? What, were people asked to say these things? I don't, you know, because at the end of the day, even if we have the evidence of the, you know, um, um, Kat Ashley and, um, you know, the others uh, saying, you know, whatever, that he left the room very early in the morning, stuff like, you know, you know all of this. Um, at the end of the day, we don't know if there was no evidence, you know, that was now, that is not completely lost saying the opposite, or if there was no evidence of Edward Seymour setting up his brother. We just don't know. You see what I mean? It's like, and sometimes also because we tend to forget that, you know, when you go through, well, I think it's, it's amazing when you go through in archives and you look at the sources and the manuscripts, but you, I don't know if it happens for you, but I'm always like, 
I would love to know the private conversations. You know, when I looked at like ambassadors' reports, I knew there was, you know, in the reports, and they're very long, right? It's like the letters are very, very long because they have to tell the, the, the monarchs everything that happened. But I don't think they said everything, everything. You know, I don't think they say, oh, Elizabeth, you know, sometimes they say Elizabeth took me in a corner, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think they say, oh, and she told me, you know, she can't cope with the pressure of being queen or, um, you know, I don't like, maybe she would never have said that. But I don't know, like, I feel like you don't have the oral history. You don't have the, the possibility to interview you know, to interview them and say, oh, what was it like to be at the English court? And they would probably say something completely different that they wrote, you know, officially to their monarchs. You know, that's funny that you say that because I was recently looking at a letter that, oh, I don't, I want to say it was Vanderdelf wrote to the emperor. And yeah. in, in the letter, he included all of these minute details of stuff that had happened in a privy council meeting. Yeah. How would he have known all that? Somebody had to have told him, right? Yeah, well, that's, 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 that's the thing. Right? When you're at court, like, think about it. Think about all the gossips. Think about um, the ladies-in-waiting. Their own role, like, you know... Um, of seduction, telling them maybe they were, you know, maybe they were bribed. You, you never know, you know, you never know exactly what what was going on. Um, and the ambassadors, like, what I've, I've noticed as well is that, uh, especially the the French and, and Spanish ambassadors. I'm going to talk more about that than you know anything else because it's what I know more. But um, they were kind of spying on one another, you know. Like, for example, in in a French ambassador's letters, you have um, sometimes they come in the line. Oh, I saw the Queen, you know, in the garden um, with the Spanish ambassador, and I fear that, you know, they're, they're discussing a potential marriage with, you know, the Archduke Charles, you know, or someone else, you know, and you're like, okay, so you're literally, where were you to see them? Were you spying on them? Were you trying to know where they were? Like, I'm just always very amazed <laughs> at the way, um, at the way the court culture and politics actually worked and i think it's not that different from today well we don't have courts but you see what i mean like the society and or even schools you know like when you would spy on each other and try to see who's doing what and it's exactly the same way it works the exact same way i think I always do this and I somehow bring Thomas Seymour into the conversation and then I get off track. <laughs> I love talking about all this with you. I have to remember we're talking about Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Sorry, I got off track too. Like, because in a way, she's very much at the center of it all because she's the center of, you know, the mystery around Thomas Seymour. She's a, she's the reason why you know if he was ever set up she's the reason why it happened, and because you know she, it it was a threat that he if he was getting married to her that would create a threat to the crown, and to the power the established power at the time, and she's the center of all the interest from ambassadors. They all want you know her to get married. Everyone is doing their absolute uh, you know to make sure that she will choose the master's, you know, choice. So in France, we have different suitors, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, Spain did as well and others did as well. So I think that she's, she remains in the centre, don't worry. 
<laughs> I am curious. I want your take on something because obviously her mother, Anne Boleyn, um, was the center of attention for many years at English Court. Everybody knew about her. How yeah. do you how do you think Elizabeth was like her mother? I think she was smart like her. I think she was ambitious like her mother. Um, I think I think she was extremely influenced by Anne Boleyn on so many levels. Um, the problem as well is that, for example, lots of people would tell you that you know because of what happened, because of that she was executed for high treason, that Elizabeth didn't really um, you know wanted to be associated to um, Anne Boleyn. But I think it's completely wrong. I think when Elizabeth became queen, you could not said bad things about Anne Boleyn in her presence. I don't believe that. You know, I don't I believe that it would have been something that she would have completely lost her temper over. And um I think she was like Anne Boleyn in a way that well let's face it, she probably learned from her mother and, and the marriage, like I believe that, you know, um and I guess maybe it's more um, and, and with the uh, kind of influence more than Anne Boleyn, but, but I still think that there's something there. And I think that she was intelligent like her mother, ambitious like her mother. She wanted to rule like her mother wanted to. I think her mother loved power. She wanted to be Queen of England. Um, and I think that Elizabeth really enjoyed that as well, being Queen of England. So, and I think they probably have this the same kind of like so sorry. I think my cat is agreeing with me. Uh, I think they had like kind of the same um, compassion as well. I think they were like the compassion comes from, you know, Anne Boleyn on so many levels. And uh, yeah, but the intelligence definitely, definitely. And and the fact that, that she, um, Anne Boleyn was really good at playing, you know, the court politics. She was, you know, she, I would say a bit scheming, but Elizabeth was like that as well. She knew how to play the court, how to play court politics, how to play, you know, diplomatic roles as well. Yeah. Do you think she had any of the maybe paranoid qualities that Henry VIII had? Hmm. It's a hard, it's a hard question. Um, I'm not sure. You know why? Because, for example, like when you look, well, when you talk about, you know, being paranoid and stuff, I'm thinking about then all the plots against Elizabeth, the Catholic plots. Um, and when you think about it, she takes such a, a long, oh, people would argue with me on that, but I would say, show me your evidence. Uh, but I would say that she takes quite a long time before believing that the Catholics in our country who are radicals can be a threat to her. So I don't think she's really paranoid. Um, no, I don't think she's like her father for that. That's a good answer. I, I you know, I thought of after I, I wrote that question down and I thought, I feel like we don't really see that side of her, like that we don't really see it written that she had that paranoia that both her father and grandfather had. And it makes me wonder if that had something to do with maybe having um, William Cecil by her side practically her entire life, whereas the other ones had advisors that kind of went, came and went. I think it's not just William Cecil. It's the one you think about it, there are like three men who remained at her side uh, for 30 years or like over 30 years of her, of her reign, who are, even if Robert Dudley is something different, like I think we can, you know, even 
either put him in, in another box. <laughs> but um, the devotion of William Cecil and of um, uh, Francis Walsingham is quite remarkable. I've always said that as well, you know, because when I ask questions, uh, when I get uh, questions or um, when I give talks, often people want me to discuss kind of the comparison between Elizabeth and Henry III, you know, because I've worked on on, on both, uh, Henry III of France, obviously. And I've always thought about the fact that I think that the most striking difference, because I don't think Henry III was a bad king, so he, he has a very bad reputation in France. He's had a bad reputation over centuries. So historians um, now are starting to really reassess um his reputation but but before he was just a really bad king um and then when i started looking at the evidence i realized that the, the elizabeth and, and henry the third um they obviously shared um an unexpected and, and secret uh, friendship at some point later in the in henry the third's reign but um but also i realized that they were very similar they were very similar in terms of like the type of monarch they were and they were very similar in terms of like the politics they wanted to implement in their countries. And I, I was I was struck by this because it was like, why Elizabeth was so, you know, um, successful and Henry III was not. And I came to the conclusion in my mind, obviously, um, that I think it's because of what you've just said, the advisors. Not, so just not, you know, William Cecil, but also Sir Francis Walsingham. When you have people who completely believe in you, who are devoted to you, I mean, those two men spend their lives making sure Elizabeth you know, remained alive, basically, it was like, you know, all the threats, they were, they were protecting her, they were like a shield. And even when they disagreed, and they, gosh, they must have disagreed so many times, because Elizabeth was extremely stubborn. And at the end of the day, she got, she got what she wanted, you know, they wanted her to marry, she was like, no. Um, so she's always done whatever, whatever she wanted. But they remain completely devoted to her. So I think, yes, that's the reason why she didn't need to be paranoid because you already had Sir Francis Walsingham like being paranoid for her in a way and trying to get like as many, you know, uh, potential threats under control. Um, and and lots of people th suffered for, for that, obviously, um, because lots of Catholics were um, then, you know, tortured and, and persecuted Um from 1570. So, yeah. You've mentioned a couple times in our conversation about some marriage prospects, and I'm curious, correct me if I'm wrong, but canon law at the time stated that a Tudor girl, I'm going to say a girl by today's standards, that she could marry at the age of 12. Is that correct? Yeah. So what I'm curious about is I feel like I'm not as strong on her earlier marriage prospects how many, or can you tell me who her marriage prospects were before she became queen? Do we know anything about that? We actually, we actually know. Yes, um, I, I, the only problem is like it's not on top of my head. But actually, I'm I'm working right now with um, the wonderful, amazing Professor Carol Levin. We're working on a, a short um, life and works of Elizabeth the First that's going to come out in 2021. And and I know she uh, she did a section on on that where she wrote um, about the courtship. 
So there were um, Charles, Charles, Duke of Angoulême, uh, in 1534. So Elizabeth was um, one years old, uh, one year old. So from uh, 1534 to 1535, there was discussion um, with. Um, so uh, Francis the first, third son, Charles, Duke of Angoulême. And um, he sent Philippe de Chabot, an admiral de Brayon, to negotiate um, England. Obviously, it didn't happen, but um, I think it's quite interesting. It was he was the first, like so. It was the third, you know, son. Um, so I think it's also interesting to see, like, okay, I'm not going to give you know a very good you know, prospect for this with it. And at the same time, I guess the second son married Catherine of Medici, like Henry II married uh, Catherine of Medici in 1573. So maybe it was the only one left, you know, like to say, okay, we, we need we need an alliance with England now. Then there was, um, in 1542, um, there was, I think, if I'm not saying, James Hamilton, the third Earl of Erin, who created so many problems for um, the Stuarts. Um, so apparently there was something, a ne negotiations, um, when they were both nine years old. So that's quite interesting. I don't know much about this. Uh, so then we have Edward Courtney in 1544, 1556, Earl of Devon, um, which I don't know much about. I don't think it's really discussed. But um, then we have, in 1554, we have also Emmanuel Philibert, Duke of Savoy, which is very interesting because this man was like um, such an important political figure in um, in France and in in Savoy, obviously Savoy being so so important. So I think it's interesting that we see that during Mary's reign, there's a strong and also a strong Catholic, you know, so trying to control the the, the princess, you know, trying to control Elizabeth as a princess. Obviously, all of this didn't work out. And then obviously we have um, after that we have from 1558 when she became queen, we have a uh, Prince Eric of Sweden. Um, you know, when he became king, then we have all you know many others, and it, it never stops <laughs> almost. And obviously we have Philip II in 1559. I think sometimes we forget that there were those marriage prospects before she was queen because it was such a focus of her reign that she had to marry and she had to have children. Yeah, but that focus like started before, obviously. I think what, you know, what is so surprising? I think what is almost, I mean, I, I, I'm even going to push it here, but think about it, Rebecca. And I'm sure that, you know, um, the listeners are going to be like, yes, you know, like it, it, it's true. Think about it. Isn't it shocking that um, Henry VIII didn't secure good marriages for his daughters, both of them? I think it's quite shocking. Because, I, yeah, tell me. I, I always thought that he didn't. Um, because it was harder for the, him to find good marriages for them because they were considered illegitimate then. Uh, yes, but at the same time, they're still of raw blood. Would you see Yeah. And, and it would have, and actually, I don't, I'm not sure it works. Like, I, I mean, I understand why you would think that way, but I'm also like when they are like, you know, restored at court, like, you know, in favor and they're restored in favor and they get favor back from their father, both of them, you know, with um, Anne of Cleves and, you know, Catherine Parr. Um, then there's almost a, um, a family, right? I mean, you see what I mean? Like a family between like the three children, Henry VIII and Catherine Parr. And at that time, you, you're thinking, why hasn't he 
done everything he could to secure them like good marriages which would have created strong alliances and not only for him and the end of his reign but also for edward's reign because it's easier for edward or even why did, didn't edward did it you know why didn't he do anything because again a strong alliance through a marriage was the only way like you know it's a dynastic alliance and it allows a country to establish itself on the european political scene and there were so many prospects i, I just don't understand why he, he not you know either like um henry the or maybe edward maybe was too young but even you know we say it was young but he was not that young in terms of like it's not uncommon for having young kings you see what i mean like it's not uncommon like when they're 12 years old they should be able like to think about all these things i mean they start we have to remember it's not the same childhood as our kids have today um they start reading and writing at three years old they start speaking different languages at four and five so it's like the the, the mindset is completely different they know they're important they know they're you know that they're, they're next in line you know they all their lives they're prepared for that they're, you know especially edward it was like everything to henry the ape so but, but but i find really surprising that such a, a control freak which i think he was didn't didn't spend Lots of like when you look at Francis the first and the way he was with his daughters, when you look at Henry the second, the way the way he was with his daughters, um, though he felt sometimes obviously, but um, you just don't understand why, why didn't he push? Why didn't he push for? Because he would have he would have probably forced Elizabeth to get married. You see what I mean? Like he would have probably said, well, or or promised her to someone, and with the with a treaty that was almost unbreakable i don't know i'm just i'm just thinking that it's quite crazy that it never happened and quite lucky for both of them for mary and is because then it meant that mary was in charge of the one she was going to choose you know and also mary we know that she went through so many prospects um marriages prospects uh, during when she was a princess we know that he was like oh you're not good enough you're not good enough and with it was like that very protective but she went. She has so many suitors, and when you look at Elizabeth, she did have some, but apparently not. You know, not that many. The the one I just told you are not. You know, it's not a, a huge bunch of them. And um, maybe I don't know. Maybe he thought. I don't know what he thought. I, and, and, and in a way, Elizabeth got really lucky because then she could do what she really wanted to do. And what's funny is that in 1554, it's more her sister forcing her. You know, like you have to get married um, and marrying her to um, a Catholic was like what everyone wanted and she refused and everything, but she was much older as well. So it was easier for her to refuse. But you know what I mean? Like when you're younger and your father tells you, you you're going to be promised to this prince or king or I don't know, um, duke or whatever, it's really hard for you then to say no. Do you see what I mean? You really uh, made me think about this a lot. I feel like we could talk about this particular subject for an hour. I know, sorry. No, <laughs> speculating on the reasons why they did things. But we, you know, if only we could get inside their head and understand why they did the things they did. I know, it's crazy. But you know what? Probably also we have lost letters. Maybe we have, maybe he tried and maybe we just don't have it. You know what I mean? Maybe there are. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't know. I, I just find it very fascinating. I think they both got lucky on that. 
Elizabeth and Mary had a very interesting relationship. Yeah. What can you tell us about maybe their relationship that we don't already know or that maybe is a common misconception about them? You mean you mean Mary Tudor, right? No, no, Mary Stuart, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the two sisters. Um what can I tell you about it? I think I think so many people are interested in that, you know, in, in that relationship. And personally I haven't really worked on that. Um though I've always been really, really fascinated so what i would say though i think there are some people especially uh, there's a book um tudor queenship i think that's called it's edited by um anna whitelock and someone else that i forgot the name i'm so sorry (laughs) and um it's a very good book because it puts it put the two sisters in parallels you know it looks at what they've done together you know like you and it reassessed in a way and Mary's reign. What I think that's fascinating is the fact I'm, I really, it's funny because people, people assume because I don't like Mary Stuart, I'm not going to like Mary Tudor. And I really like Mary Tudor. I really like her um, because I know that she has such a bad reputation and I'm not, you know, excusing anything that she's done, you know, in terms of persecutions and stuff. But I just find it really funny that she had a French counterpart, Henry II, who um, persecuted and executed more Protestants than her, and he was never called, you know, Bloody Henry. So I think that it's very funny that she was called Bloody Mary. That's one thing. The second thing is um, I think that she must have had some strong affection for Elizabeth at some point in her life. Um, Because when you think about it, when she sent her sister in the tower... Elizabeth reminded her of a promise she gave her, like that if anything happened or if, you know, if there was any rumors that saying that Elizabeth was plotting against her, that she would always give her an audience for her to explain herself. And the fact that Mary, like, acknowledged that and allowed Elizabeth to explain herself in person, it shows that they had a strong bond. Because when you really think about it, everyone was advising Mary not to see her sister and to keep Elizabeth in the tower. They were even, you know, Simon Renard was even pushing for more than that. He was pushing for Elizabeth to be executed. And she refused. And I think she refused out of love. I think at the end of the day, of course, there was no strong evidence of Elizabeth, you know, um, you know, being an accomplice of um, Thomas Wyatt. But there's also more than that. There's the fact that probably she was like, oh, she's my sister. And the fact that there's a huge gap between them, like uh, 16 years or something like that, um, it means that there's almost, this bond is so, like, it's a strong bond. You know, it's a, Mary was probably like, um, in so many ways, a second mother more than a, more than a sister and I don't know how many people have like big sister but I do have a big sister and there's this yeah there's like this almost like this strong maternal affection for your baby sister and I think she totally had that with Elizabeth and despite all their differences despite the fact that they were you know completely different types of women Mary really believed in getting married really believed in Catholicism she was you know all of this at the end of the day, 
she knew Elizabeth was, you know, her half-sister, and she couldn't really do that to her sister. I really believe that. So I think that I can't really tell you about the relationship in terms of I haven't really looked at their letters and everything. But what I know is the fact that when Elizabeth was sent to the tower, even I'm sure it was like a shock that Mary would do that to her. At the end of the day, Mary decided to get to, to grant her an audience and second of all, not to execute her. And I think it's out of love, out of sisterly love. One of the things I always go back to is I wonder if if Elizabeth learned from Mary's mistake, Mary so badly wanted to marry Philip of Spain, even though, you know, her, her counsel were, didn't want that. They were advising against it. And obviously it didn't turn out the best in the end. Do you think Elizabeth learned from that? And maybe that's why she, one of the reasons why she didn't marry Robert Dudley? Hmm. Um. Oh, that's a good one. Let me, I'm not sure. I think I think that she learned from the bad marriage. Well, you know, the bad choice of husband from Mary. I think that. I think that Elizabeth. I think. I think there's a few things. I think the reason why Elizabeth never married was the the main one because there are so many reasons. But I think the, the main one was that Elizabeth loved power. I think the reason why. She did not marry Robert Dudley in the end. It has nothing to do with her counsel. Um, it had to do with the fact that Robert Dudley and her probably shared, um, they were probably in love with each other. I, I really believe that. But I believe that both of them loved power more. And she realized that Robert Dudley wanted to be king more than he wanted to marry Elizabeth. Do you see what I mean? Like he was probably, he probably had feelings for her, but he, but if she hadn't been queen, I'm not sure he would have pursued her that much. Um, and I think she knew that. And I think then she was like, well, then why, you know, why would I give up my power that is mine for someone who just want power as well? You see what I mean? So I think that's the reason, the main reason why she didn't get Robert Dudley. But I think Mary has influenced Elizabeth in other ways. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not. So hopefully it's something new uh, for everyone here. But um, she's learned um, from Mary the way you should address your people in parliament and your council. And Mary was the first to use the, you know, the maternal love saying, uh, I'm your queen but I'm also your mother and you're my children and I'm going to love you as my children. And she said that in 1554, uh, after the the rebellion was crashed. And she's going to say, you know, I'm quite hurt that you've, you know, that some some of my children basically, you know, um, were went against me and everything because of my marriage with Philip II. But um, she was, she's going to say as well, you're my children and I love you. And Elizabeth was in the audience when that speech was given. And I think she learned. She learned here something she learned. That's such a powerful speech. And that's such a powerful rhetoric that then she used and she kept using all her reign, you know, during all, well, not maybe not in all those speeches, but like most of them. My mind is racing over here. So one of the things that you just made me think of, you were talking about 
how um, both Elizabeth and Robert Dudley probably loved power more. Do you think, um, you know, I know how much you love Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, (laughs) Do you think she, Elizabeth made Robert the Earl of Leicester and then offered him up as a marriage prospect for Mary Stuart. Do you think she did that as a way to say, here, you can have some power? Or was it all about having Robert as a spy? So there's a few things. I think with Robert, there was like this, so they both loved power, and I think they. Um, she knew that she knew she could never have him as her husband because he would want to be in control of her, um, and he would want to be, you know, he would become king of England, but in a way that she was not prepared to let him be king of England. And I've, but there was something else between him and her. I think is um, there was trust and there was confidence. I think they shared. A lot of confidence. I'm sure that um, they shared lots of secrets, and there's no doubt that they were extremely close to one another. You know, I don't know how close, <laughs> if you see what I mean, but there's no doubt that they were close to one another. And I think when she offered him, offered him to marry Queen of Scots, there was probably this idea of, well, if you want to be king, you can have the kingdom of Scotland, right? You know, like be king yeah. of Scotland. Um, but also, she because Scotland has always been seen as a country, and I don't try not trying to offend anyone <laughs> because I love Scotland. But Scotland has always been as a country um, from other European powers as a bit, you know. Um, how, how can I say that? Less significant on the European political scene. It is mostly due to the fact of the, uh, the geographical loc- location of it, right? It, it, I don't think it's because they thought, oh, it's so, it's so, you know, it's a rubbish country. I thought it was because it's so far away from what was happening, you know, in on the continent that it felt, oh, it doesn't have much um, importance. And when you read as well Mary Stewart's letters, and that's also why she gets on my nerves so much, she doesn't have much respect for, for Scotland at all. She wanted to be queen of France, and then she, want, she wanted to be queen of England. So at no point she wanted to be queen of Scotland. It was not enough. It was never enough. Scotland would have never been enough for Mary. Um, to a point of why, that's why she wanted England. She wanted to be one of the big, you know, uh, powers of Europe. And so when, so in a way, for Elizabeth to say, "Well, Robert, you can have the kingdom of Scotland," she was like saying, "Yeah, I'm giving you a kingdom that is less important than, you know, France, Europe." Um, England or Spain or, you know, all, all of these countries. So you can have it. It doesn't matter in a way. But at the same time, we cannot downplay the card that it also would have helped get Mary under control because Robert would have always been, you know, um, his allegiance would have always gone to, to, um, to Elizabeth, not Mary. Never. Even if, if they had married. And you can see that as well when he, when he, um, Married Lettuce Nullis, um, Elizabeth's cousin. Um, he never, you know, he, he's always close to Elizabeth, regardless who he's marrying. That's almost like a, a complete different thing for him. It's like, there's two sphere. There's like, there's Elizabeth is a unique woman in his life, not just because she's queen, but probably because of the relationship she, they had and, and and the bond, the special bond they shared. One of the things that we often hear about Elizabeth 
and you touched base on it a little bit, was whether or not she had a physical relationship with Robert Dudley. Yeah. <laughs> we, just, we don't know. There's no way to know for certain, right? No, there's no way to know. What I know is that lots of French ambassadors noted that um, he left very early in the morning um, her chambers, her private chamber. But then I wonder, why were you there? Why were you in the corridors at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m.? I don't know, like, how early they were talking about. To look if Robert Daly was leaving the room. <laughs> I just find it pretty weird. And also, like, I think, so then I think that the, the ambassador could not have been there because they had houses, right? And they were not staying at, like, they were not staying in the in in the castle they were not staying you know um i mean on on a daily basis they had their own houses in in the city so i'm like okay so maybe they stayed over because there was a plague or some plague or something a problem or uh, but even then why would that chambers be so close to the private chamber of the queen that doesn't make any sense so uh, you know i've been thinking about them and i was like thinking maybe they asked a la- or maybe a ladies in waiting said that but then you can speculate as well. If you're a lady in waiting and you're always asked these kind of questions and maybe you make them pay. I don't know, like I'm thinking like, you know, what would you get out of giving all this information for free? So maybe they get like paid or, you know, bribed and everything. But then why don't you just lie? Yeah, he was leaving at 4 a.m. in the morning. I don't know. And then obviously if it was all true, I'm sorry, I know I'm, I'm thinking out loud a lot. But also if you think, okay, it was all true, because so many people reported that he left very early in the morning. They're very close and everything. Okay. Did they have sex? I mean, as I said to my students, would you play chess all night with someone? I don't know. I don't think I would. <laughs> but, like, at the same time, at the end of the day, what I love with this question is that it almost doesn't matter. It almost doesn't matter because I hope, she, I hope they had sex. Honestly, I hope Elizabeth, you know, had that in her life <laughs> because I love Elizabeth and I want her to be happy. <laughs> but um, it almost didn't matter because whatever happened, it didn't, you know, she obviously didn't get pregnant. It obviously didn't make her marry him. So that's quite interesting in a way. You know what I mean? Like this kind of relationship is quite interesting. Also, another thing that I found fascinating that's related to this question is the fact that uh, Robert Dudley was um, the patron of most of her, if I'm not wrong, of her royal physicians. So I found it really interesting that the men who were assessing if Elizabeth could bear children and everything and if everything was right down there were the men who were actually paid by Robert Dudley. So if they had sex, he would have been like, he was, yes, tell, you know, I'm paying you to tell that she's a virgin. You know, I'm just speaking. Oh, here, I, didn't, I didn't know that. You just taught me something new. Yeah, yes. I, I, I'll have to send you the link to the, to the book on that. I think it's the Royal Doctors of the Tudor Period or something like that. And, and when I read this, I was completely um, fascinated. Oh, I need to read more about that too. Now yeah, that, yeah. that is so I'll very... send you the link. I'll send you the link, and then you can, you know, uh, I can't remember who's the who's the author, but I'll definitely then you can dig in. <laughs> Thank you. One of the one of the other things, you know, you talk about the royal physicians, um, them giving her exams, all those yeah. types of things. I want to touch briefly on the silly Bisley boy theory. 
Yeah, okay, I don't believe it at all. <laughs> I, I don't understand why people so adamantly believe it. Like, it seems ridiculous to me. What do you mean people? Like, who was... Well, there. I, I, would, I wouldn't say historians. Uh, I would say maybe Tudor enthusiasts who don't understand that it's a made-up story to make her look bad. Yeah, also, that's... That, so those stories were created because it... It is so unbelievable that a woman could rule on her own and be successful that they had to create that story. Oh, she died when she was, I don't can't remember the shitload that these stories, you know, um, have, like I say, um, that she died and then was replaced by a boy who was, you know, looked like her and, uh, and then brought to court. And then it would explain why she never married. And so on. that's bloody bullshit. That's absolutely bullshit. There's, there's no ground to it. They're just utter, utter shit. And it was mostly done um, because, um, first of all, she would, you know, people criticized her. We know that. She was, like, um, seen as a legitimate, the daughter of Anne Boleyn, all of this. So it's just to, yeah, they are detractors. They just want, they don't want to have a woman who's successful, who was a daughter of someone who was a traitor, all of this. And, and all these stories created like were created like that, and they, in my opinion, absolute rubbish. There's no bloody ground on them, not one. So I, I hope people just stop believing that, then we can just move on and move on with real history and, you know, as much as we can with you know the evidence we have. Now that I have you all worked up. Uh, one of the things um i think when you are so passionate about a key figure in history and someone speaks ill of them it infuriates us what what is it and maybe we've covered it already but what is it that somebody could say to you about elizabeth that would just set you off so many things rebecca um I think you know what. I also uh, became wiser. <laughs> well, actually, I'd like, I'd like to think so. I think when I was younger, uh, I took it like as a big, big offense, <laughs> like anything you could say. So, for example, or a thing that my students like to try to trigger me. So they would say a few things. They would say, um, "I think, I think it's one of my students would say." Oh yes, I think, I, I think I remember now. Oh, that she was not pretty, and I. Does it matter? Like, uh, <laughs> it's like I was offended for her, <laughs> which is completely ridiculous. But I was, ma- does it, I was like, does it matter? Does it matter if someone is pretty or not? Does it make, do, you know, does it make them less successful, like ama- less amazing, blah, blah, blah. So I, I started like, you know, being a bit defensive. Um, there's that, there's, I'm sure like if you ask my students, they, w- they would tell you everything uh, they, <laughs> they told me before. I think one of them was trying to, um, also, like, yeah, um, annoy me by saying um, that Mary Stuart was a better ruler. You say that, I think I'll lose my shit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I think I have in the past. No problem with that. And I think then, what else can you could you say about Elizabeth? I think most, anything that's a bit untrue or if you tell me, oh, she's persecuted Catholics, I'll say yeah, she did. Uh, if you tell me, um, they also, I'm not completely blind about the bad stuff she's, you know, that she's done. Um, and actually, um, I know some people are, don't really understand my my passion or my love for her 
because of the bad stuff she's done. And it's not that I excuse her or anything like that. And for example, I'm thinking about two things that I, it's not that I can't forgive her. It's just because it's done. It's a bit, it's emotional, more like being, you know, analytical, but it's two things that she's done that are absolutely like, you can't justify them is the, um, when she started colonizing Ireland, when she made that decision, uh, and I understand when Irish people can't stand her. I do understand. I also understand um, the reasons how she justified the reasons, uh, not the reasons why she, because as I said, it's, you cannot justify it, but how she justified it was by the fact that I, um, Ireland being Catholic, there was this threat that France or Spain would use it, would use Ireland to attack um England and then she she was extremely scared of that but it's still she made a massive massive mistake there was no need to do um, what she started at the same time I want to insist that the colonization of Ireland under Elizabeth is a complete failure and it only worked you know later in the 17th century so in a way it was the fact that she started it super bad, Absolutely no, you know, no justification, blah blah blah. But at the same time, it was not even successful. So that's what it's even even worse in a way. And the second thing is um, the fact that she supported um, the beginning of the slave trade, uh, not as we know, you know, in the 18th century, but um, but she she supported it. Well, I don't have lots of letters, so that's why I say I, I always say I don't have letters that she said she personally supported it but obviously she she would have come across you know um papers and authorizations where she was like okay fine let's do that and again absolutely no justifications whatsoever but i think she only did it to play the same game that was playing spain and france especially spain at that time where because france were like too busy with the religious civil wars but uh, with Spain, where she was like, if they're expanding their territories, if they're you know, becoming an empire, I need to play the same game. And then she looked at what they were doing and she did it as well, which is not a justification. And one of my good, good friends, I don't know if she would like to be named, so I won't name her, but um, who told me uh, I expected more from a woman. <laughs> and that is why I don't like her. And I was like, I get it. I get it. Fair enough. You know, fair enough. Uh, that makes sense. What do you think Elizabeth should be most remembered for? <sighs> That's a good question. She did so much. Yeah, she did. And that is, you know, like, she brought stability in so many ways to England. And But it's not that. It's not what she did. It's what she represents for me. A woman in power who is single and, you know, at that time, because everyone was telling her, you're weird. I mean, how many times Catherine of Medici was telling her, where are you going to have, you know, a baby? When when are you going to get married? And she just didn't, I only believe she really didn't want to. And, and it was seen as something so natural. And yet she never changed her mind. She never changed her mind. And I think she should be remembered for that. She should be remembered as well for um, her intelligence. The way she wrote her speeches is absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. We have, you know, manuscripts of her writing her speeches. 
she was very, very good with rhetoric. I love like I love her responses. I mean, when you read also her response to um, ambassadors who were, you know, asking her to marry and what are you doing? Like she's so brilliant. She never answers this idea of like giving an answer that is not an answer. It's so brilliantly done. I mean, like always, I've always been amazed with this. Um, I think you can learn so much from her. Um, it's also like if if you want to learn things from Elizabeth, learn that she's always known her place. She wasn't. She's always known when she had power how to act. When she had power, how to act as well. And it's beautiful. She's she's a strong female leader. She just is. She just is. And I think she should be remembered for that. Thank you for sharing that with us. I feel like during this conversation, you may have opened not only my eyes, but some of the listeners' eyes to who Elizabeth was as a person. So thank you for that. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) Well, now we've reached the part of the show where I ask you the same five questions that I ask every guest. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. So the first one is, if I could offer you a time machine and you could safely travel back in time to observe any place, any time, when would you choose? Okay. That's going to be the night that the Royal Exchange in London was open and Elizabeth took um, Lamotte Fenelon, so the French ambassador, to it. And they spent the whole evening and night in each other's company, and I would love to know exactly what happened. And the confidence that she made, like that, 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 that she told him and everything. I, I want to know. I want to know that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure she said more than what he wrote in his letter back to, um, to Charles and Catherine. So, yeah, I really, I, and also this night seemed to have been like such a, an amazing night, and I would have loved to see seen. Elizabeth being so loved by the people of London and having such a great evening and being in a good company because I believe that um, Lamotte Finelon probably had it. You know, he was he admired her. That's for sure. Um, so yes, I guess that's that's my answer. Which of the six wives of Henry VIII is your favorite? Anne Boleyn. She gave birth to Elizabeth. So <laughs> no, no brainer, right? Yeah, no brainer. <laughs> I love Catherine of Aragon, so, but it has to be Anne Boleyn. What are you currently reading, or what's the last thing that you read? So I'm uh, currently reading um, The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. So it's on Churchill. So completely different of what I'm doing, but I'm almost finished with the book. And it's a brilliant, brilliant book when my cats let me uh, read it because for some reason they just love it use it to use it as a pillow so i don't know what's going on there <laughs> but it's a really brilliant book and i love this um author maybe they want you to read it to them yeah okay well <laughs> I, I don't think so Rebecca. <laughs> i don't know if your cats are like mine but whenever i get out a book if i rest it on my lap he immediately crawls on top of it and lays on it like no you need to pay attention to me right now Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you can't read women. What are you, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> what is something that people might be surprised to learn about you? Oh, um, that um, I was a French Taekwondo champion. So that may be something. And I'm a black belt. That might be something that people don't really know about me. <laughs> and be surprised. 
now I'm afraid of you. No, don't be. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, where can people find you and your books? So there's my website, uh, estelleparent.com. And I think that would be the easiest way because then when you go in my publications, you just can click on the pictures of the books and it will take you where you need to go. But also I have to admit that so far I've only published academic books. So with academic publishers, which means that they're very expensive and I'm very sorry about that because I have no control. People need to know that first I have no control of the price tag. Second of all, I don't touch any royalties on them. So it's not like, but it is my, they're all my babies and they are my pride and joy for the moment. (laughs) It's a bit sad to say, but it's true. And I'm also working on um, writing books that are more affordable and for you know, general audience. So please keep, you know, um, keep faith in me and I'll hopefully I'll make it happen. Estelle, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you about Elizabeth the first today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really enjoyed that too. Thank you so much for having me. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You can find my show notes from this episode and how to become a patron at TutorsDynastyPodcast.com. Don't want to miss an episode? Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Patreon, Podbean, or anywhere you can find podcasts. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.